You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, as Silicon Valley Bank's collapse is followed by an emergency takeover of Credit Suisse, are we on the cusp of another financial crisis? Second, with yet another final warning from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what will ecological breakdown look like on our financial systems? Another quick announcement before we get started with today's show. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has signed up to support Macrodose at patreon.com. The show wouldn't be possible without your support. We've still got a few copies of my book left as part of our giveaway. This short book, The Cost of Living Crisis and How to Get Out of It, goes a bit deeper into some of the structural issues with our economy and how we might start to address them, especially in the context of the climate crisis. If you head over to patreon.com, for a limited time only, subscribers to our Macrodose supporter tier will receive a free book in the mail over the coming weeks. We've only got a few more copies to give away, so if you've been meaning to subscribe, please make sure you do so today. You can find us at patreon.com slash macrodose. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash macrodose. As regular listeners to Macrodose will know, I usually try to break these weekly episodes into three shorter stories. But with everything that's been happening in our global banking systems over the last 10 days or so, and with the various takes being thrown around in different parts of our media, I thought it'd be worth spending a little longer today unpacking what I strongly suspect might be only the first domino at the start of a period of increasing financial crisis. Now, I want to make it clear at the outset that we most likely aren't about to lurch back into a repeat of 2008, if only because, having gone through that existential financial crisis once, banks are now generally better insulated and governments more prepared to step in. But that doesn't prevent other smaller crises happening. And, unlike 2008, the consequences of climate change are now also unavoidable, adding a volatile new element to the mix. So there are two main events in the last fortnight or so. First, as we covered on the podcast last week, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Silicon Valley Bank was a medium-sized US lender specialising in offering banking services to US tech companies. The bank was offered a bailout in all but name last week by the US government. Second, last weekend, the 160-year-old Swiss giant bank Credit Suisse was bought up in a rescue package by its close rival, the other Swiss giant bank, UBS, in a government-arranged shotgun wedding. Ever since these events began hitting the headlines, stock markets have continued to be very volatile, with shares in banks in particular wobbling dramatically. As we speak, there is at least one smaller US bank still being hit by speculation, even given the promises of US government support across the system. Now first, it's important to lay out some of the context here. What's happening now is a product of the decade of very, very low interest rates for large financial institutions. From the last major financial crisis in 2008... Central banks across the world jammed their main interest rates down to zero, or at least very close to it, and ramped up quantitative easing programs, in other words, printing money electronically and dishing it out into the rest of the system, in a bid to get as much money as possible, as quickly and as cheaply as possible, into that financial system. This had all sorts of distorting impacts on the economy. First, that new quantitative easing money largely made its way into financial assets and property, especially in the UK. The banks and other financial institutions basically took this new cash from the central bank and looked to invest it in pretty low-risk activities that would still produce a decent return for them. 
The result was a massive boom in both financial assets and property prices, especially in London, which has exacerbated inequality, as the Bank of England itself will now admit. Second, a great deal of that cheap money also started flowing into highly dubious investments. If interest rates are very low, then a lot of otherwise very risky investments start to look more viable. The great flood of cash into tech and cryptocurrencies over the last few years has had this quality to it. With returns so low and more conventional investments, things like bonds in other words, there was a solid incentive for those with access to cheap financing and facing low returns to try and seek out higher returns anywhere else they could. This problem extended beyond just venture capital and the more obviously risky parts of the financial system. Because returns and safe investments were so low for such a long period of time, institutions that needed to generate relatively low but consistent returns started to search around for new ways to manage their investments. For pension funds in the UK, this meant using what was known as, and is known as, liability-driven investment, or LDIs, to try and manage what is otherwise a mismatch between what they need to pay their pensioners at any point in time and the returns their investments would generate. The difficulty with LDIs is that these packages of complex financial derivatives depended critically on government interest rates remaining low. When the costs of UK government borrowing spiked around the mini-budget last September when Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss presented their radical plan for a free market overhaul of the economy and markets kind of exploded, that in turn led to an explosion in the liability-driven investment strategies that the pension funds were using and the Bank of England had to step in to bail them out. Now, stepping back from the details here, what's important is that the explosion of LDIs was a direct result of rising interest rates, which is the same thing that did for Silicon Valley Bank. On the one side, SVB's customers were tech companies very much affected by the sudden end to the era of cheap money. On the other side, the bank's own investments were highly sensitive to changes in interest rates and, stupidly, the bank did not have any insurance, no hedging on those sudden rate movements. Once interest rates started to rise, the bank was left exposed. A bank run began, as we discussed last week, and depositors rushed to take money out, fueled by rumours on social media, which is when the federal government stepped in with the bailouts, promising to make sure any depositors' money was guaranteed. But the same sets of issues affect other institutions too. First Republic, another smaller US bank, continues to suffer from speculative attacks, its share price sliding despite big promises of US government support. One estimate from last week is that an incredible 190 US banks are at risk of failure as interest rates rise. Looking further afield, we can see a similar problem starting to happen to whole countries in the global south, where poorer, less developed economies had borrowed at low interest rates over the last decade or so. Many have built up very substantial debts in currencies other than their own. As interest rates have started to increase, those debts in currencies other than their own have become harder to manage. Combined with the extremely rocky economic conditions in the wake of COVID, a number of global South economies have already defaulted in recent months, meaning they're unable to pay all or parts of their debts. The UN thinks that 54 countries are currently in debt distress, approaching the point of potential default. So turning back to Credit Suisse for a second, we're faced with something of a different problem. Credit Suisse is one of the 30 or so banks typically deemed by financial regulators around the world to be globally systemically important. In other words, sufficiently big that if it collapses, it'll drag pretty much everything else down behind it. The Swiss giant had in recent years been hit by a series of scandals. Greensill, the high-risk financier notoriously promoted by former Prime Minister David Cameron, collapsed in 2021, forcing Credit Suisse to close four funds that invested in Greensill, worth about $10 billion. 
US hedge fund Archegos collapsed a few months later, forcing losses of $5 billion. In October the same year, the bank was fined $475 million for its part in a bribery scandal in Mozambique. A leak in February 2022 revealed that credit suites of billions of dollars held by dictators and tax avoiders around the world in secret bank accounts. This feels somewhat like finding out that the Pope is Catholic, but it provokes calls for investigations. Its newly appointed chief executive was forced to resign months into the job for breaching Swiss COVID quarantine rules. And by October last year, an internet panic had caused the bank's share price to collapse. So Credit Suisse had been badly run for a number of years now, and last week it just happened to find itself caught up in the wider market panic about banks at the very same time that its management were forced to admit that their previous annual reports contained, I quote, material weaknesses. By last weekend, with Credit Suisse's largest shareholder, the Saudi National Bank, saying there was absolutely no chance of them putting more money into the institution, the bank was at risk of collapse and therefore, because it was globally systemically important, of blowing a hole in the entire global financial system. Desperate to avoid a bailout, but equally keen not to actually destroy the world's financial system, and with direct pressure being applied by the US government, the Swiss government arranged a hasty takeover of Credit Suisse by another massive Swiss bank, UBS, for a rock-bottom price, and with assurances to UBS that Credit Suisse's many and varied legal issues would not rebound onto UBS. In addition, and this is what has sparked alarm in financial markets, the government forced through losses on a particular set of Credit Suisse bondholders, those holding what are known as contingent convertible bonds. These were created after the financial crisis in 2008 as a way to try and insulate banks that were at risk of collapse against needing a bailout from governments. Now, these bonds are supposed to be somewhat more protected than people holding equity in the bank. If the bank collapses, people who hold equity are most at risk, and then people who hold these particular bonds are supposed to be somewhat protected. What happened with Credit Suisse is that Actually, the shareholders were still paid and a bunch of people holding those bonds lost out. Reverse of what is supposed to happen. It was presumably motivated on the part of the Swiss government and regulators by a desire to sweeten the deal for shareholders who are otherwise being pushed into accepting a deal that had been hastily cobbled together over the weekend. So why do these things matter? On the face of it, these are two separate banking failures that are only tangentially related to one another. Notwithstanding the obvious capacity of rapid communications via social media and WhatsApp and Signal and all the rest to spread rumours and destabilise markets being now a ubiquitous common feature, this is kind of how the world financial system and the world economy operates, the roots of their demise seems fairly distinct. But if we zoom out for a second and take a look at the bigger picture, it is clear that if interest rates continue to rise, more of these tensions will continue to appear in our global financial system. From British pension funds to US regional banks like Silicon Valley to developing country defaults, the warning signs are flashing everywhere. Now that is a big if. As this podcast goes out, the US Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, is due to decide on whether or not to raise its interest rate again this week. Until the Silicon Valley bank collapsed, this seemed pretty well guaranteed. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell making it clear that he believed jamming up interest rates was the best way to restrain high inflation. Now, that plan has been thrown into some disarray. The Fed and other central banks may be in a panic over inflation, jamming up interest rates rapidly over the last year or so. But that demand for higher rates is running straight into the reality that our economies have gotten very used to low rates and are now very fragile in their financial systems to any kind of changes and rapid changes in interest rates. It's a sign of fundamentally weak economies that they are operating like this, especially for the global north. 
the period since 2008 has been one of relatively lower growth and relatively weak investment, even as huge profits were made for some, and as we've seen since the pandemic, wealth inequality has worsened markedly. So the choices of central banks across the world could have dramatic consequences over the next few months. They face a dilemma that looks a bit like continuing to test the limits of an already vulnerable financial system by jamming up interest rates in an effort to restrain inflation, or else backing away from what is supposed to be one of their primary objectives, which is controlling inflation, in order to try and protect vulnerable financial systems by not being quite so enthusiastic with the interest rate increases. Now, it's important to note that increasing those interest rates isn't necessarily going to have much impact on inflation anyway. The mechanism involved here, as we've gone through before, is essentially one of trying to induce something like a recession or an actual recession in order to basically frighten workers from asking for more money. This is as simple and as crude as the, the way it's supposed to work. But they have created a real dilemma for themselves. And the fact it is a dilemma is a real indicator of fundamental economic weaknesses out there. We might find as the months grind on, and as those weaknesses become more apparent, that neither Silicon Valley Bank nor Credit Suisse will be the last of banking and financial panics that we have to contend with. Okay, after that longer-than-normal first story, I wanted to add some additional notes about the climate crisis and where that leaves us with regard to this already vulnerable global financial system. When comparing our current moment of financial fragility to that of the 2008 crisis, it is impossible to ignore climate breakdown as a growing factor mixed in with the wider impacts of ecological crisis. This point was drummed home this week by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which has been tasked for the last few decades with providing the international scientific consensus view of what's happening to our climate. In very stark terms, the scientists have presented what they are calling a final warning for humanity on greenhouse gas emissions. We are already well into the danger zone, with climate change already causing widespread damage to our health, our food sources, our water supplies, and essentially the entire basis of human life. We are not, at all, on track to meet the 1.5 degree target for average temperature rises by the end of the century set in the 2015 Paris Agreement, without, typically, ideally, immediate reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. We are, in other words, going to experience significantly more extreme weather and, quote, irreversible losses to ecosystems over the rest of this century. These effects are already evident everywhere, and particularly in countries of the global south, which have contributed the least in terms of historical emissions, yet are experiencing the sharpest edges of climate breakdown. The IPCC have recommended the various targets for net zero be brought forward to 2040 in industrialised countries rather than 2050, although of course governments around the world are already failing when it comes to the softer 2050 target. One less well understood consequence of climate change is the increased risk of financial crises and failures as fragile financial systems are hit by this destabilisation of the entire global climate. Already, losses to the insurance industry worldwide attributed to climate change come to $270 billion a year. It's going to become increasingly hard to run a profitable insurance business in a world where extreme weather events like floods or wildfires happen far more frequently. All of which makes a decision by the Bank of England last week to wind back its climate change work all the more peculiar. Having been something of a pioneer among central banks in trying to incorporate the impacts of climate change in its work, for example, in trying to think about what increased uncertainty about the environment might mean for financial stability, the bank is now cutting back on its funding for the research. It's short-sighted, but a clear sign of how unfit for purpose our financial system as a whole has become. 
we cannot be too far off the first bank or other financial institution failure as a direct result of the environmental crisis. And it seems better to get ahead of what will be worsening chaos and build solid, publicly owned and democratically managed financial institutions that will be able to provide the investment funding we need to cope with a rapidly warming and more unstable world. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. 